Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Aristotelian Society. I should say that this was this meeting's been rearranged. If anyone had come here for the political philosophy talk uh, by Leah Yippie from the um, LSE, then that talk will be in, I think, four weeks' time. Um, I think that's right. It's four weeks' time. So check the schedule. So you are entitled to leave today, now, this minute. I won't be offended. And and the speaker will not be offended. <laughs> Um, but so today's speaker is Eleanor Knox from King's College London. Um, we're delighted to have her here today. She's going to talk about um, novel explanations in special sciences, lessons from physics. Eleanor, welcome. Thank you um, very much, Tim, and thank you all very much for coming. And yes, genuinely, if you're here to hear Leia Upi, please feel free to leave. Or you can stay and hear about lobsters. So, you know, <laughs> less relevant to the world than political philosophy, no doubt, but, you yeah, know, perhaps interesting nonetheless. Um, okay, so what I'm going to um, try and do today is try and take an account of novelty, of explanatory novelty that I like in physics, um, and apply it to an example in the biological sciences. Um, and the hope is that, the, I mean, this is just going to be one example, it's going to be relatively restricted in scope, but the hope is that you might shed some light on the sense in which special sciences could be novel, maybe even autonomous, even in a reductive context, via this kind of example. Um, maybe I should give a bit of prehistory of the talk. I mean, I do lots of philosophy of physics. Um, I don't know if everyone at the Institute Society wants to hear about philosophy of physics. I thought, oh, really ought to work out how this kind of example applies to biology, and I thought, well, it would be much more fun if we talked about biology. That would be much less techy um, and much less irritating. Unfortunately, you can kind of take the science geek out of physics, but you can't take the physics out of the science geek. Or I don't know how, quite, how the, quite how the analogy works, but um, all that happened was I just read tons of biology, um, and now you just have to hear about two kinds of um, science, so I hope that's okay. Um, okay, so there's a set of recent developments uh, in philosophy of physics and in philosophy of biology um, that all address the issue of inter-theoretic relations, but perhaps do it in a way that's slightly different than the kind of canonical set of inter-theoretic relations discussions in, say, philosophy of mind um, or philosophy of science more generally. Um, so one of the things that's happened in the recent uh, literature in philosophy of physics um, is a lot of talk about emergence. After this slide, I'm going to try not to say that word again. Um, I think I might have to say it once more. Um, the reason for that is that this is a term of art in philosophy of physics and it means something rather different from philosophy of mind. Terminology is hopeless here. Um, so emergence in the sense that the philosophers of physics mean it is usually held to be explicitly compatible with reduction. Um, but what lots of physicists have been interested in, and this is the, where philosophers of physics are getting their usage from, they've been interested in the idea that there are certain phenomena that seem to be novel, autonomous, um, have a life of their own, despite us having a pretty good understanding of their um, of reduction. So, in particular, there's an analysis due to several people, but most clearly spelled out by Jeremy Butterfield, who says that we should define emergence in physics. This should be emergence subscript phys, if you like, whatever you, whatever gets rid of your uh, uh, normal connotations, as behaviour that's novel and robust relative to a comparison class. Um, and then all the interesting work to be done is spelling out notions, notions of novelty and robustness that are compatible with um, some kind of reductive program. Um, maybe it's worth pausing here and saying a bit by what I mean by reduction um, as well. So by 
talking about something that's compatible with reduction, I don't mean that I'm a kind of gung-ho Nigelian reductionist. Um, I don't think that everything that's been said about reduction in the, um, in the philosophy literature uh, needs to go through. But I do think there are going to be lots of individual cases in physics where we certainly have a pretty good quantitative analysis and a pretty good understanding of something you might call higher level uh, behaviour with respect to lower level behaviour. Um, and it can be subject to something like a Nigelian uh, reductive analysis if you're pretty liberal about what you allow in your bridge laws. Right? If you're happy to connect these two things up with lots of complicated mathematics and abstractions and idealizations and approximations, I think there are lots of cases where reduction looks pretty plausible. I'm not arguing here for reductionism to core, it's just that it's interesting to see that perhaps there can be novelty even in this reductive context. Um, so how about philosophy of biology? Well, this is a slightly more myopic view because I'm picking one little bit of philosophy of biology, but there's been quite a lot of recent interest in a phenomenon of biological robustness. Um, so you might think there's a connection um, to the physics literature right there. Um, so the idea is that biological systems have higher level functions that are robust under a remarkable range of changes to the underlying variables. Um, and there's supposed to be a connection between this and multiple realisation. Another one of these links that we want to be a little bit careful with our ordinary associations. Um, and there's also a connection to the wider literature on causal mechanisms. And one of the senses in which I'm going to be a bit unfair to the biology literature in my, with my kind of sort of visiting tourist physicist hat on um, is by not being terribly sophisticated about the causal mechanisms literature. Indeed, um, not mentioning it. <laughs> that unsophisticated. Um, all right, so I'm very interested in forging a connection between these two literatures. I want to see whether ideas in philosophy of physics might go over to philosophy of biology. I'm also very interested in whether ideas from philosophy of biology go over to philosophy of physics, but I'm not um, doing that today. Um, but I suppose I, I think it's worth just starting out sort of to draw some, uh, to sort of set down the turf, if you like. Um, both these literatures, as I said, have moved a long way away from the original discussion in, say, philosophy of mind or philosophy of science. Um, and so I think it's worth saying about how you don't make the connection between these two literatures. Um, so if you think of intertheoretic relations as all about sort of arguments against reductionism, really, or perhaps for reductionism, but... Um, you know, the arguments that are usually relevant to the ones against it. Um, you might look at these two literatures, and if you hadn't seen some of my caveats, you might think that surely what's going on in both philosophy of physics and philosophy of biology is a kind of fight against reductionism on two fronts. Physicists like emergence, how great. Uh, biologists are interested in multiple realisation. Uh, and there are connections uh, between these literatures and those things, but that can, the connection isn't that these are both anti-reductionist arguments. Um, I'm happy to say more about it in the question period. I think there are very good reasons to reject the argument for multiple realisation to anti-reductionism, certainly on any form of multiple realisation uh, that might be plausible. Um, I think that there is an interesting sense of novelty. It's the one that philosophers of physics are interested in that is compatible with reduction. Um, and in both cases here, in both philosophy of biology and the philosophy of physics case, the focus is here, here is on how levels of science might be essential autonomous even while moderate reductionist programs are on the table. Um, and that's common. Uh, there are obviously plenty of anti-reductionists in philosophy of biology, but it, to the kind of literature I'm talking about, it's common to both. OK. Um, so I've argued elsewhere, um, and also in a paper with uh, Alex Franklin uh, back there, um, uh, that novelty can be analysed as uh, explanatory novelty. Um, so the kind of explanatory novel novelty I'm interested in 
arises when we change the variables used to describe a system and then abstract based on the new variables. Um, it seems to apply really well in physics cases where we understand the mathematical relationship between variables. Um, but it's an open question whether the account could work in the biological sciences. So that's what I'm trying to explore today. I don't expect you to have any idea what I mean by explanatory novelty based on that single sentence. I'm going to give you a much more detailed example. Um, so, as you might expect, expect a kind of outline, I'm going to spend a bit of time laying out the case in physics. And of course, in as much as people want to respond to, to this talk, your response might just be that you find my account of explanatory novelty in physics really implausible. And I'm happy to have that fight. Um, but because, you know, sort of written some papers on that, what I'm curious about is whether we can get it to extend to a, an example from biology. Um, and I'll suggest that in as much as it goes over in the physics sample, it is going to go over um, in at least one interesting, relevant biological example about lobsters. Um, but we're going to have to think a little bit more about biological notions like robustness and how they might um, impact on the argument. So the conclusion is going to be, say, a relatively modest one, just that this, this example, there's more analogy between biology and physics than you might think in certain cases. But I think it's thought-provoking, because the example I'm going to use is going to be one of a neural network. Um, so, you know, you can draw your own conclusions for why you might think that would be intriguing. Um, all right, so let's get more precise on what I've said so far about uh, the philosophy of physics context. Um, so Jeremy Butterfield, in a sort of slew of papers um, that have had a big influence on literature from 2011 onwards, says that a behaviour described by some higher level theory is emergent with respect to a level of lower level theory just in case that behaviour is novel <coughs> and robust with respect to the lower level theory. I mean, in a sense, that's only as, I mean, it's only a programme, right? It hasn't told you very much there. But when you cash out with a little bit more about robustness, you get some more information. So what he means by robustness uh, is that a higher level behaviour is robust if it's preserved under perturbations um, at the lower level. So generically, robustness is, you know, you've got some higher level phenomenon and you can twiddle with the lower level stuff and it's maintained. And that's supposed to have something to do uh, with the autonomy of the higher level. You can see that you're already going to find links to multiple realisations in this kind of phenomenon. Um, but we'll see perhaps how far that might not go later. Um, novelty has been much less spelled out. So despite sort of lots of people thinking that Butterfield's analysis of novel and robust behaviour is really interesting, uh, there's this big lacuna over novelty because this particular debate crops up in examples in the philosophy of physics where we seem to have a puzzle. We seem to have some kind of um, ideal, essential idealisation often in a, in a physics case that maybe looks like it threatens reduction, but then the behaviour looks rather novel and robust. And um, of course, if, if you think reduction is threatened, then the sense in which the high level thing is novel, it's just new, it just isn't deducible from the lower level behaviour. It's fairly obvious, but then when you explicitly hold it to be reducible, it's less clear what you mean by novelty. Lots of philosophers of physics have thought that this has something to do with particular mathematical relationships, asymptotic limits. Um, Alex and I argue in a paper that that's not the whole story, um, and this kind of explanatory novelty uh, that I'm going to talk about is, is a better, catches more of what we're interested in these cases. Okay. So the analysis of novelty that I want to give really is going to be compatible with reduction. It's in that you can think of a, a formal reduction as being entirely available, but the explanatory value of certain explanations at the higher level, level is not being uh, accessible from the lower level. So the idea is that generically when you change variables, um, I'll get to that now. 
generically, when you change variables, when you move between theories or levels of description, um, you are going to change the kinds of abstractive techniques that are available to you. The kinds of bits of information you can chuck out change, naturally, with a change of variables. So you then perform something like an explanatory abstraction based on the new variables. Um, I'm making some assumptions about explanation I'll talk about in a second. Um, you explain only using those variables that are explanatorily relevant. But you've changed variables, so your selection of variables cross-cuts what's happened um, in the old description. And the explanatory value of the abstracted explanation is novel relative to the original variables because the value of the new explanation isn't visible when you translate back into the old variables. It just doesn't even count as an abstraction by the lights of the old description. Um, what am I assuming there in terms of explanation? I'm not going to give you some worked out account of explanation in this talk, but I am making one assumption that I think is very plausible that I think should apply across lots of areas of explanation that's pretty popular these days. I'm assuming that abstraction is a big part of explanatory practice. Getting rid of information is essential to explaining things. Um, that goes against some things that were said, you know, for example, in, in the 1980s. So Peter Railton talked about the ideal explanatory text. Um, and the idea was that the ideal explanation would give you every bit of causal and nominological detail you could possibly give with respect to some phenomenon. Um, and then we always, you know, flawed people that we are, we always select from the ideal explanatory text, but it was the ideal. Um, that view of explanation, I think, has largely fallen out of favour. I think a lot of people now think that far from the ideal explanatory text being ideal, a lot of explanatory value is going to derive from precisely how you select that information, exactly how you abstract away from detail. Um, so if you read the work of, say, Michael Strevens on causal explanation, or Bob Batterman on sort of more physics-specific explanations, you'll see a huge role for the way that we select relevant detail. Um, so I'm not going to assume that, say, the model of causal explanation is the be-all and end-all, or any other model of explanation. I like to be a pluralist, but I think what they should all acknowledge is that often the key to getting a good explanation is abstracting in the right way. Selecting relevance relations. They might be causal relevance relations if you're in a domain in which causation is the appropriate thing to be talking about. I don't think that's all domains. Um, sorry. Uh, all right. So I think this kind of example, this idea about change of variables really needs, I'm afraid, a little bit of maths and a little bit of... Um, a little bit of physics uh, to get clear on. So here's a very simple example. These are two masses and they're oscillating on springs. It's a very simple little oscillator. And they're controlled by two coupled differential equations that just tell you about how these things are accelerating relative to spring constants, etc. Very simple baby physics example. But, you know, maths is hard and you can't solve these equations <coughs> directly. Um, nobody with half physics education would try to. They'd instantly change their variables. So they instantly change them to these new variables that are just really simple linear combinations of the old variables. It's hard to cook up a simpler variable change than this. But of course, whenever you're solving problems uh, in, in physics, you're often changing variables to make things tractable. And of course, whenever you're moving between levels, you're often ch changing variables, not necessarily in this formal, just swapping around variable sense but you're generally trying to give a, a definition of one set of quantities in terms of another. Um, and when you do that, the reason you do this normally is you just uncouple the equations. It makes the whole thing really easy to solve. Um, and you get two equations of motion for your new variables. Um, and Bob's your uncle. Um, what's interesting about those new variables is they describe completely different modes of oscillation of the two masses. So one 
describes the mode of oscillation where the masses move backwards and forwards synchronously, and the other they're moving in opposition. Yeah, and those are the two natural modes um, of this um, of this particular little setup here. So one thing that's happened, we've done this really simple little mathematical change, but you then get equations and variables that characterize not the kind of, if you like, the what I'm thinking of here is kind of the lower level description, the the displacement variables of the masses, but a kind of higher level joint state of the whole system. You might be thinking talking about higher levels and lower levels is mad when it's this closely related. But I mean, I suppose part of the kind of moral I want people to draw is that it's a difference of, of kind of degree, not of kind, when we move um, between variables. Um, so this is really useful because we have these two different modes of oscillation. And you might want to offer explanations of phenomena that were happening to do with these masses. Now, of course, um, this all gets really artificial because I've never known anyone to ask to explain anything in terms of the mode of oscillations of two masses on a spring. Real explanations would be modes of oscillation of really complex structures. But I could set something up, right? I could stick a little, um, a little light in the centre of my two masses and it only goes on when the spring's compressed to a certain degree. And then I want to explain how often that light flashes. And if I want to explain that only one mode of oscillation is in any way relevant. Um, under what circumstances, you know, will the light flash, how fast will the light flash when it flashes? Some question like that. Um, uh, and you aren't, when you answer that question, you're only going to appeal to one uncoupled equation and one normal mode. You're going to select some information, right? And you're only going to be interested in the mode of oscillation where the, light, where the central spring is getting squeezed. <coughs> so the light is flashing. Um, if you try and explain the same thing in terms of the displacements, it's all going to be much uglier. You try and stick with your first two equations, and you're going to have your two variables and your two equations. Um, you're going to try and explain it from that basis. You're not going to have the abstraction available to you. You need to have changed the variables to be able to chuck out the right set um, of explanation. So the idea here is that a helpful explanatory abstraction is only available when you change variables. Sometimes you have to get the variables right before you can do the right kind of explanation, the right abstraction. OK. So that's supposed to kind of give you a, an impression of, of what I mean. So the idea here is that as long as you assume that appropriate abstractions are a very important part of the explanatory process, then that means what's going to count as a good explanation, your judgments of explanatory value, are going to depend on what abstractions are appropriate. And what that means that what counts as a good abstraction um, is not going to remain constant across variable changes. Generically, when you change variables, you're going to change the abstractions that are available to you. And so what counts as a good explanation, your judgments of explanatory value, should also be expected to change with a change of variable. There's no reason for your judgments of explanatory value to map neatly from a situation as described in one set of variables to a situation as described in another. OK, so that's what I mean by explanatory novelty in this context. I mean the novel explanatory value you get when you have uh, an abstraction available that wasn't available in some uh, other set of variables. I suppose the obvious objection at this point, and I sort of have it a little bit in me because you, know, you choose such an oversimplified example, and the first thought is, you know, putting the word novelty on this is pretty strong. I mean, you know, literally eta1 equals x1 plus x2 allows a back translation of anything I can say in my translated variables back into the old variables, you know, that a five-year-old can perform virtually. Um, and so the idea that um, you really can't see what's going on in this explanation from the lower level is a little hard to access because, of course, via looking at the variable change, you can kind of 
get such an easy understanding of what's going on between these two levels. Um, so you might be worried that, that this explanatory value isn't really novel. It's all too easy to understand. But realistic examples of interesting variable changes, the kind we really use in science, are going to be just orders of magnitude more complex. Um, and they also rely on approximations and idealizations to find the new variables. So it might be that the kind of novelty I'm talking about is something we should think of as admitting of degree. There's kind of novelty here. But if you now, say, set up a system rather similar to this uh, little uh, vibrating masses system, but you perhaps do it with uh, 10 to the 26 atoms, you'd have a very simple basic little crystal. And you might be interested in the oscillation modes of that crystal. Um, and now, understanding the value of abstractions at a higher level is going to be really pretty impossible from the perspective of the displacement description of the crystals. But it's, it's not a difference of kind, it's a difference of degree that's going on here. Um, okay, so lots of puzzled faces. I'm not sure I brought everyone with me um, thus far. So you can all, we can all, we can worry about whether that's the right account um, of explanatory novelty. But just for the next few minutes, grant me that it might be. Grant me that it might be an interesting kind of a explanatory novelty. Could it exist in the special sciences? I mean, I've just chosen something that's a very mathematical example. It just doesn't look like it'll necessarily easily go over. But it's an intriguing question to ask because, of course, if you think this kind of novelty can go on in, in physics, then it would give you a kind of novelty that special sciences could have. Um, and, and actually, to be fair, answer some of the questions. I mean, sometimes it seems like the reductionism debate right, is a kind of, you know, a, a war about the usefulness of the special sciences, which always seems like a crazy way to, to view it. Um, right? I mean, nobody denies that the special sciences are mostly much more useful than physics in most circumstances. Um, so, so if, you know, maybe a physicist thought this was what was going on, then you know, people in special sciences would be less worried about defending against reductionism. Um, but, oops, sorry. But the account relied on having mathematically well-defined relationships between variables as well as equations of motion at the moment. So we'll have to think about how to think about, say, biological examples that aren't typically characterised by anything like perfectly perfect quantitative analyses. Um, and of course, you might also just think that this is all out the window in the special sciences because there's very little plausible reduction anywhere in the special sciences, and I'm only worried about kinds of novelty that are compatible with reduction, and who cares if reductionism is a hopeless program in the special sciences? So we need to cherry-pick an example carefully if I want to take these across. And um, I started thinking about these things, and I came across in the philosophy of biology um, an example I thought was extremely well, well cherry-picked. And so I should say right now that everything about this example I carefully calibrated to be a really nice example for my case. But there's still going to be this question about why do we think that other examples might not be uh, uh, potentially sort of pliable in this kind of way. Okay, so now we're going to talk about lobsters. Um, so this is a little picture of a lobster digestive system um, with lots more detail than we need. Um, lobsters have... So at least one person has told me that lobster biology is a little gross, so I apologise if this is... Um, but lobsters have a kind of mandibles, they have a little mouth here, and then they have a kind of stomach, and then they have teeth before it goes into their intestine. Genuinely really weird. Um, and, and their digestive system is not controlled by this ridiculously small brain. It's controlled by a set of neurons around the stomach called the stomatogastric ganglion. Um, this is where you're going to be able to tell that I just don't normally do biology, and I think it's cool. Um, so... The stomatogastric ganglion, 
which is a network of 30 neurons, contains two what we call central pat pattern generators. Um, central pattern generators are generally neural networks that, can, that control rhythmic behaviour. So much more complex CPGs control uh, a horse's gaits, for example, um, your breathing, your heartbeat, your walking, lots of things that don't go through the brain, right, but that need to produce rhythmic patterns. They're produced by this kind of neural network. And this particular one has two kinds of central pattern generator, one that um, called the pyloric CPG that controls peristaltic motion of the gut, so moves food down the gut. And another, the one that will be of interest to us today, the gastric mill CPG, which outputs patterns that control this little set. There's three little, it's really bad in this diagram, but there are three little teeth here that can move in different ways. And there's one that controls these three little teeth uh, in, the, in the stomach of the lobster. Um, bad sci-fi films kind of spring to mind really quickly. Um, all right, so this gastric mill CPG, it responds to stimuli, um, and it outputs characteristic uh, neural patterns and that causes the lobster's teeth to move in two characteristic chewing modes. So this is where it gets really cherry-picked because it's sort of, you know, there are two modes in it. But, um, but hopefully you'll agree that, the diff that, that it's more than a superficial similarity. So the teeth can move in one way, which is the squeeze mode, so all three teeth. There's just two lateral teeth and a central tooth. Um, and all three teeth uh, squeeze together simultaneously to chew the food. And there's a second mode of operation, which is the cut and grind mode mode where the two lateral teeth move in opposition, it kind of tears food apart. Um, and if you read papers on this, you see diagrams like this. You see people analysing what the characteristic output pattern of the CPG is. Um, and one of the characteristic output patterns is, uh, it's, it's a little bit, this is actually the squeeze mode and it looks like they're not going simultaneously, but this is because this is the kind of muscle that pulls the teeth outwards and that's the muscle that pulls a tooth inwards if you like. Um, but, but, but the two different types of chewing are characterised by whether basically different signals are in sync or out of sync. Right? There's also slight differences in signals themselves. But the main way you can tell the difference between whether the output's going to lead to type 1 chewing or type 2 chewing is whether these different signals are in phase or out of phase. Um, Okay, so you can explain phenomena by appealing to the characteristic output and patterns of the gastric mill. I should say right now, this, again, this explanation ends up being artificial because, um, and this probably should teach me things about the methodology of science that I should then think hard philosophically about, but um, you might think that people studying lobster digestive systems ever talked about lobster digestion per se, but of course they're not. They're, everyone's interested in these because they're really simple neural networks. So nobody who writes about this stuff seems to be terribly engaged with actual lobster behaviour. Um, and so I actually have no idea why the lobster has two, two modes of chewing or what kind of food they use. But anyway, but suppose that they use the cut and grind method for particularly tough prey. Apparently lobsters can eat other lobsters. I imagine that's fairly difficult. Um, so it certainly, this, this is the bit that I can find out from the literature. So what happens is certain kinds of meals stimulate the anterior gastric receptor and that causes type 2 CPG output. That's the kind of thing that you might be interested in explaining when you're interested in explaining the lobster digestive system. Um, and it should be obvious that there's a similarity here to the explanation of the flashing light <coughs> in the physics case, right? There's some kinds of beha lobster behaviour where we just want to appeal to one mode, the features of one mode of operation of the CPG. We don't really care about the existence of the squeeze mode in answer to this question. It wouldn't be helpful to the explanation to start getting into it. Okay, 
So how similar is this to the physics example? And there's a superficial similarity. We've got these two modes of operation, um, and it's certainly and 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 you can explain certain kinds of behaviours by appeal to one mode, um, right? Um, what's the important difference between the two cases? Well, I take it the really important difference between the two cases is I'm not going to write down any equations for you, right? I I can't find in the literature an articulation of the variables that describe the um, the mode, uh, the two different CPG modes of the lobster. Um, I don't even have, yeah, let alone have a, a complete quantitative analysis of how that relates to the underlying description. Um, so that seems like a big difference. I don't want to downplay it. Um, but let's be careful about why we think the difference might be important. You might think that that difference should be important because it would threaten reduction. You might think that the issue here is that I've just, you know, it's just not going to be interesting because I don't have a complete reduction between these two levels. But note how odd it would be to claim that this was a great example of a non-reductionist context. I mean, the entire reason why anyone has actually spilled pages in... I mean, people just aren't that interested in lobsters, right? Um, the reason that people have spent, you know, years and years studying the somatogastric ganglion of the lobster is because it's a reducible neural network. It is, in fact, one of the really nice things about a lobster neural network is it's so that their neurons are so long, you can get electrodes on either end of them and you can measure all of the variables in the lobster network, and you can measure the output patterns. So it's so simple that we can understand it, and it happens to, be, to have its individual uh, neural variables be measurable. So that's why it's a really, and then we compute model it really easily. Um, so, so it's very odd to think that, that the big difference between this and the physics example would be something like a failure of reduction. Um, if you want an example of the reducibility of a neural network to its components, this is the best you're going to get. Um, and I think it's pretty good. best you're going to get shouldn't be a damning with faint praise. Um, okay. So maybe what we're worried about is that we don't write down these variables. We don't use the quantitative analysis. I mean, well, and what does that mean? Does that mean they don't exist? Now, you might think if they don't exist, then that threatens reduction, but... Again, that would, there'd be a tension there. But anyway, I'm not sure that you should think that there's just no such thing as variables that would characterise this kind of system. Um, one of the reasons is a very general point about physics that Mark Wilson made in a paper in 1985 that I didn't know about until uh, Jeremy Butterfield told me to look at it the other day, and I have just thought, what a good making a point that I think is a really, really valuable one in all of this literature on theoretic relations. And that's that... The philosophical literature has typically underestimated the inventiveness of physics to come up with definitions and variables um, to a degree that's usually not appreciated. I mean, the silly, like, you know, temperature equals mean kinetic energy, totally false example that everyone uses gives a really bad impression of how inventive and, and extraordinary physics is at coming up with ways to, if you think of sort of carve up a state space into the variables that, that you want to do it, um, carve it up into. The whole history of trying to reduce thermodynamic statistical mechanics is a very complex one of coming up with really difficult mathematical functions that connect two things. Um, and so non-existence claims about the existence of variables are a little bit hostage to, I mean, not just hostage to fortune, but a bit hostage to ignorance of the uh, levels of complexity involved in typical reductions of variables in physics. Um, so I think that's a pretty good point in general. Much more specifically, I mean, this is a really simple system. 
we have modes that are characterized by things being in or out of phase. I can't get enough quantitative data and, and nor do I really feel like doing it, but I mean, I can have a really good think about how I could start to think about linear combinations of synapse variables that would output characteristically out of phase patterns, right? I mean, this is not a hard mathematical question if you really wanted to do it. You might ask them, why don't we do it? I mean, presumably the answer is that you're not going to learn. We do computer modeling. We do neuron by neuron computer modeling instead, and it's pretty simple to do. And so, and presumably somewhere within that are pretty accurate mathematical descriptions of the of the variables. But, um, but we don't tend to talk about it in the non-computer analysis. I think that's probably the answer. So I think it's, it's just very, very implausible to think that there isn't such a thing as an approximate variable that's reasonably well-defined in terms of the synapse variables that would, would characterise type 1 and type 2 chewing appropriately. Um, it doesn't even sound like a hard problem. Um, and physics is pretty good at hard problems. So obviously, mathematics is good at hard problems. Um, okay, so grant that those variables exist in principle, and then I think this really does look very like um, the original mass oscillator example. When you appeal to a type 2 pattern, you're just abstracting away from all the details and variables that are associated with the type, type 1 pattern, and you produce better explanation, but you couldn't understand why you were selecting that subset of information if you tried to give a back translation uh, into, at the neuronal level. Um, that's not to say that these cases are the same, right? I mean, let's say they have this nice superficial resemblance. And there are plenty of important differences between the two cases. And one thing, our neuronal network, um, the bit that controls the gastric mill, CPG apparently has 11 neurons, but an 11 neuron neuronal network with a whole load of different variables that correspond to things like synaptic strength is unbelievably more complex than um, the... Uh, little oscillator case I gave you. Um, so the description of the CPG modes in terms of the underlying variables is going to have to be really complex. There's likely to be all kinds of idealizations and approximations involved in anything that involves biology. Um, but as a broader point, both of these kinds of features tend to strengthen the case for na novel explanation because they make the accessibility of the explanatory value of the higher level harder and harder uh, from the perspective of the lower level. Um, so the distinctively biological features of this case seem to strengthen uh, the idea that you can take it across from the, the explanatory novelty account across from uh, physics to biology. Okay, but this, I said that some of this was inspired, and, and it certainly, so this whole example came from a paper um, by a, uh, a Pittsburgh grad student called Trey Boone, really interesting paper about multiple realization in biology, um, where he used this stomatogastric ganglion um, as an example. I thought, well, Fantastic. It sounds so much like my normal modes example. Um, but, but all of that literature talks about biological robustness um, and multiple realisation in ways that you wouldn't necessarily talk about robustness in physics. So I suppose there's one more place where I could think that somebody thought there was a strong disanalogy here. And it would be that there's something about biological examples that makes them so much more novel. That the no there's another kind of novelty involved, a much more interesting kind of novelty involved in, say, biological examples because of the kind of robustness that they display. And you kind of don't need your kind of pathetic little weak Knox account of explanatory novelty to make these cases interesting. I can imagine someone who thinks that. Um, so what are, is it possible that in this particular case that the presence of some kind of strong uh, invariance under perturbations makes it relevantly disanalogous? Um, 
So biological robustness is present, as the name suggests, when uh, biological phenomena are robust under changes to their component uh, level description. Um, there's a bit of dis there are some distinctions between the discussion of robustness uh, in physics and biology, um, and I guess the question is whether those are relevant. And one thing is that they're connected to multiple realizability. I'm not going to say much about that here, and we could talk about it in the question period, but I mean, in a sense, I think multiple realizability has become a sort of real weasel word um, in that it's absolutely true that whenever something displays an interesting invariance under changes to the lower level, it's interestingly multiple, multiply realizable. But that doesn't have the kind of connections to say something like Fodor's argument that you might think it does. Um, so when I talk about the kind of robustness and how similar it is to physics, perhaps you'll see that even if you want to call it multiple realizability, it's not going to get you very far in terms of coming up with novelty. Um, it's evolved in biological systems, so people think this is really interesting about biological systems. So, oh God, sorry, so many buttons on this. Um, uh, so, um, so you might think that's an interesting difference. Um, the idea is that um, biological systems evolve to display uh, functions that are particularly robust under perturbations, so that our functions can survive lots of changes to the environment. That's very interesting, but I mean, it's a question of whether it's relevant. Um, and here's something I think is meant to be sort of relevant, or you might think is relevant. It's meant to be particularly strong. So the idea is that there's the sense in which biological organisms are robust under perturbations to underlying conditions, etc., um, is really strong because it's not just that they don't mind, you know, they've got a bit of insensitivity to the exact va the values. They can rearrange themselves to survive large changes. So we can, re we can reorganize our functions. You know, think about brain plasticity or something, right? And we can reorganize our... our um, uh, the underlying variables to maintain a function. And that's an evolved biological trait, and that's meant to be particularly interesting. Okay, so let's look at that, an example of that biological robustness in the stomatic gastric ganglion. The trouble is that that, that evolved strong biological robustness doesn't, so once you start to look at a really simple system, doesn't, um, perhaps doesn't look quite so special. So there's papers on the biological robustness of the stomatic gastric ganglion. Unfortunately, for my purposes, it's the wrong bit of the stomatic gastric ganglion, but, you know, um, I think it's reasonable to assume that one could write a paper on the gastric mill CPG as well. So they look at the robustness of this thing, the pyloric CPG output under changes to neuronal variables, and they model it, and they twiddle the synaptic strength and everything else, um, and they decide that the output can be maintained under an unbelievable range of underlying conditions. Um, in particular, the thing that, that people think is really remarkable is pick any value you like for any individual underlying variable and you can always find a way to make the whole thing work such that the output pattern is still maintained. So this is supposed to be a particularly strong sense of robustness, right? Because you can, you can mess with the synaptic strength of this neuron over here and the system can always compensate to keep on functioning. That's meant to be biological robustness. Um, so should that be a relevant source of disanalogy? Should it change how we think about explanatory novelty in the CPG case. I actually think that's exactly the kind of robustness that you should expect if you were just talking about uh, variables that were related um, in fairly ordinary ways. Let's look a little bit more at robustness in the case of physics. Um, so robustness in physics, like biology, is just supposed to be uh, the maintenance of higher level phenomena, 
perhaps the maintenance and value of a higher level variable, um, I've allowed a bit between phenomena and variables here, um, is maintained under per perturbations of lower level variables. Um, so in a case like the oscillator, um, you talk about the higher level variables associated with the phenomena, the two modes of oscillation, and you can talk about the fact that those variables can remain the same under changes to the underlying variables. But we never said what we meant by perturbations of the lower level variables. There are two things you can mean. You can perturb a lower level variable while you hold the higher level variable fixed, or you can allow kind of dynamically allowed changes to the lower level variables, allowing the other variables to change to compensate. You get robustness of this kind whenever higher level variables don't care very much about exact values, whenever you have approximations. You get this kind of uh, robustness generically whenever you do a standard change of variables. And by standard change of variables, I mean like, you know, take a linear combination of lower level variables to output a higher level variable, an ordinary variable change. So just, I mean, look at our unbelievably simple change of variables here, right? I mean, our two normal mode variables are robust par excellence under change. They're actually totally unrobust under change of the first kind. They care hugely. They have no approximations involved. They care hugely about exact values of these things. But I can change x1 as much as I like if I'm allowed to make a compensator <coughs> and maintain the eta1 behavior, a single normal mode behavior, uh, as long as I'm allowed to make a compensatory change to... Um, the x2. So any normal change of variables could involve much more math complex mathematical operations, but it could be just as simple as, you know, a linear combination of other variables um, is going to give you robustness of that second kind, that change, that ability of the system to maintain its function under any value of one variable given compensatory changes to another. So the biological robustness of the CPG was supposed to be interesting in part because you have this compensating change. And I do think that's interesting. But it's just what you expect if you think of the whole thing as described nicely by some kind of mathematical variable change. Um, so I don't think that aspect of, in this particular case, the CPG robustness is going to be give you any kind of relevant disanalogy between the kind of novelty here and the kind of novelty in the oscillator. Um, so that's kind of, you know, <coughs> most of what I have to say. Um, the upshot of all of that is that I think, I mean, and, and to a degree that I wasn't sure that I'd decide when I started looking at that example, that actually I think there's, there's more analogy here than you might think there is. Um, at least if you grant that some kind of reductive program of associating variables is going to go through. Um, what does that mean for the rest of biology? Um, I've not argued for reductionism overall, I don't particularly intend to, but certainly there's going to be lots of little bits of biology that look reducible to other little bits. Um, and it sort of suggests to me that this might be the kind of phenomenon that you're interested in, if you're interested in the autonomy of those bits of biology from other bits. Um, I did choose the example precisely because reduction was so plausible here. So that's the sense in which it's cherry-picked. The other sense in which it's cherry-picked to like have two modes, etc., is just, I mean, uh, it's just an intuition pump. I don't think it particularly matters. In fact, I think this explanatory novelty is better in more complex cases. So, um, so I don't think that matters. Um, but look, I mean, as I, I can leave it up to you to decide why, why you think a model of a reducible neuronal model might be a, a fairly wide-ranging interest. But... I mean, certainly, whatever you think goes here, you might think goes for, say, much more complicated central pattern generators, right? 
like that of a horse. And then one has to th- have a sort of reason why this thinks one thinks there's something different going on in kind in um, more complex biological systems. Um, all right, um, that's it. Thank you very much.